Uh, good morning, Bethel. It's Father's Day again. You know what that means, right? Yeah, maybe you don't, but for the last two years, I had the honor and the privilege of standing in for Pastor Chris on the, this third Sunday of June. I don't think it was on purpose um, that he assigned me to preach this particular Sunday, but I will admit that this year he gave me a choice, and I looked at the dates, and I, I went with Father's Day for the third year in a row. Um, and I really do mean that it is a privilege to be here. Um, I, I'm not going to lie, uh, it's a lot, of, a lot of work. I have a greater appreciation for the work that our pastor puts in, and um, I'm really glad that we afford this opportunity for him to refresh and rejuvenate and um, sit under the preaching of the word um, in, during this month, because um, man, it's a, it is a challenge um, to do this, but um, it's good work, and it's rewarding work, um, and I, I hope that, that you'll be rewarded too um, as we dig into God's word together. So this morning, we start off a new series. Um, it's a short set of sermons, and it focused on the prayers of the Apostle Paul. So today, we're going to look at Paul's prayer in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. And then next week, to be perfectly honest, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> there's, there's prayers recorded in Romans 15, Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, um, and then there's two more in Ephesians that we're intentionally skipping over because um, they were included um, in uh, our Ephesians series from 2021. So maybe somebody knows, I'm sure somebody, whoever's preaching, I hope knows already, um, but it's not going to be me, um, and, it, and uh, so we'll, we'll pick one of those other prayers. But I picked Colossians because Brother Al preached on that um, in May of 2020. Um, and I figured since none of you were here for that, that I could just re-preach his sermon, right? It was just Chad and Glenn and I across the back and probably Josh and Chelsea up front and Chris Elliott. I, like, who else was in the building other than Al that day? It was strange times. Um, no, I'm kidding. I, I, I mean, I am really grateful to Al uh, for his faithful exposition of, of this prayer, um, it certainly was an encouragement to me as I went back and I listened to it again, um, preparing for this morning's message, but it is not a rerun. Um, so I was thinking about the tie-in between Father's Day and prayer, uh, and I was prompted um, to think about the prayers that I pray over my kids. And I'm going to confess, I don't pray enough for my children. I was definitely convicted by the model that we see um, in the Apostle Paul. Um, I, I think it's important to study the prayers of the Bible. I mean, we can learn a lot from studying Moses' prayer life or David's prayer life or Daniel's prayer life. And Jesus certainly has a thing or two to teach us about prayer. Um, and that's why I picked um, his prayer um, to, to be the sermon passage or the, the uh, congregational reading this morning um, is, is to soak in that prayer. Um, for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to get into why it's important to study the prayers of the Bible. I'm just going to assume that you'll agree with me on that. Um, 
And I guess we, we have to kind of start also with the assumption that we agree that prayer itself is important. I hope we can all agree. Prayer is supremely important in the life of the Christian and the life of the church. Um, but we're not going to expound on that today. So by way of introduction, I thought I would just share with you this little prayer that I've kept on a shelf above our keys for about the last 21 years. So when you come into our house, you know, you take your keys out and you hang them up so that you always know where they are. Um, and there's right above those little hooks, there's a mirror um, that I rarely look into. Um, you can tell. Um, and, and then there's a little shelf that has... I don't know, a thousand pieces of riffraff. Um, there's Tic Tacs and there's key fobs that don't hang up anymore, but there's this prayer. Um, and so um, as often as I see it, um, either before I leave in the morning or when I come home in the evening, um, I, I try to pray this little prayer of blessing over my children. It says this, I pray for the wisdom of God in your mind. Oh. I don't, I don't cry every morning when I pray this, but I'm thinking about it now, and maybe I should. Um, I pray for the wisdom of God in your mind, that your eyes would see the glory of God, that your ears would hear his word, that your mouth would speak the truth, that your heart would be his home, that your hands would do the work of God, that your feet would follow him, that your knees would bow only before him. I pray that for you guys. Um, and I apologize, I didn't send my outline to Gail early enough to be published this morning. Um, but you can follow along uh, with the points on the screen. And um, since Pastor Chris isn't here this morning, kind of an inside joke, um, he doesn't do alliteration. Um, uh, but I took the liberty of um, using alliteration in my outline. So today we're going to look at the prelude to Paul's prayer, Paul's pattern of prayer, the petition, the purpose, and the product of, of that prayer. And then we're going to close with three more P's, um, P's that we can be thankful for, privilege, peril, and pardon. So it's all, all P's. Uh, and I've, I've titled my, um, my sermon, Prayers, or Paul's Prayer for Maturity. So uh, with that as our outline and the plan for this morning, um, would you bow with me and just ask once again, um, Lord, we need your wisdom um, to approach your word this morning. Would you reveal yourself? Lord, would you open our eyes to see your glory? Would you open our ears to hear your word? Lord, would you open my mouth to speak truth? Father, so that um, our hearts would be your home. Lord, we pray that as a result, our hands would go out to do your work. Our feet would go out to follow you. And Lord, we pray that our knees would bow only before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we need to start with the, uh, the prelude. Um, and that is to understand the context. Where does this prayer fit in the in the overall message of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So the book of Colossians, it's a letter written by Paul um, during one of his imprisonments. It's addressed to a group of people that Paul had never met 
Uh, and they made up a, a community, a church community he had never visited. Uh, Paul actually spent two years planting the church in Ephesus. Um, in Acts 19.10, we're told uh, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So one of those residents in Asia was uh, Epaphras. Uh, he was a, a young protege of Paul. And he's mentioned twice in this book and, and once again in Philemon. So in Colossians 1.7, it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras, a faithful servant. We see again in, in chapter 4, verse 12, um, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So we're going to focus on prayer today and specifically on Paul's prayer in chapter 1. But I want to think about Epaphras for just a minute here um, and ask this question. Epaphras was struggling on behalf of the church. Who are you struggling on behalf of? Think about that as we go through today. Who is in your prayer life? So Epaphras had recently visited Paul in prison, and he updated him on how the church had been going. And uh, there were some really good things happening in the church in Colossae. Um, but there was also this heresy um, that had entered in. And people were starting to teach that Jesus isn't fully God and fully man. And, and people were teaching that if you want fullness of spiritual experience, then you need to add something to Jesus. You need to add rules or religious practices or mystical experiences. But Paul knows that to add something to Jesus is actually to take away from who he is. So he writes this letter to the church to remind the people of Colossians of the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The letter opens up with two prayers. Uh, Paul first thanks God that he learned from Epaphras that the Colossians had been totally faithful to Jesus, showing love for God and their neighbors, all because of the hope that they have in the new creation that Jesus has in store. And then he moves on to pray that they would grow in their wisdom and understanding about Jesus. So that, that's, our, that's our passage for today. After this, um, you know, Paul transitions into this glorious poem centers on the preeminence of Christ. Um, we, we'll find that in verses uh, 15 to 20. And, and you know, I would um, commend to you the sermon series that we did um, back in 2020 to refresh yourself on just the beauty of that. And then in verse 28, Paul says, Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So maturity in Christ is the goal. 
Paul is going to articulate that theme throughout his letter. He wants to see these believers fully mature. He wants to see Christ completed in them. We see that again in chapter 2 um, in, in uh, what's probably um, you know, the theme verse or, or just um, a super key verse there. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is how you need to live the Christian life, with Christ at the center. And I think as we dig into Paul's prayer in chapter 1, we're going to see Christ at the center of it. The theme and the aim of Paul is maturity. And, you know, when I think about my job as a father, what am I doing? You know, I'm not raising kids with the intent that they're going to leave home someday with no skills, utterly incompetent, emotionally unstable, foolish, totally dependent on everybody for everything. No. <laughs> At least I hope not. <laughs> you know, by God's grace, it's the exact opposite. Right? As fathers, it should be our aim and our goal, and we should strive to raise mature young women and men. And why? Is it, is it just so they're not going to be a burden to me later? No, it's because it's a demonstration of my love for them. That's the charge we've been given as fathers, to love them, to see them grow, to see them mature. And so it goes in the body of Christ. We want to see the body here at Bethel grow and mature. So Epaphras struggles in prayer for the maturity of the Colossian church. And Paul doesn't cease in praying for the maturity of the Colossian church. So let's dive in and see what that looks like. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. Let me just read that now, and then we'll, we'll take it apart. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One big sentence in Greek. Um, our English breaks it up helpfully, um, but that is, that's just one big run. Paul loves run-on sentences. We see them all over the place. Um, so before we consider the content of Paul's prayer, I'd like to make some observations about his commitment to prayer. So we're going to camp out just in the first half of verse 9, and I want to make three observations, starting in 9a. And so, yeah, that's it. <laughs> we can't just blow by that transitional phrase. I love to pick on these little things. There's two words in English, three in Greek, 
um, because of this also. Another English translation um, has, for this reason also. And, And those little words tell us that Paul's petition flows out of what he just said. Because of this, we've been praying this. So Paul's prayer is tied to the news that he has heard about how well things are going. We've heard about God's grace in your life. We've heard about your faith and hope and love. And ever since we heard about it, we haven't stopped praying for God or praying to God for you. I think we have the tendency to wait until things are falling apart before we start praying for them. So this is an encouragement to me and maybe um, to you as well. Do you see the hand of God at work? Pray. Pray that he'll do it some more. All right, so it's, it's tied to his uh, observation. It's tied to the news that he heard. Second observation. Um, from the day we heard. All right, what am I observing about that? Well, here's what I, what I see there. Um, he heard We heard about it. Paul's never met the church at Colossae. He says in Colossians 2.1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So I guess I would ask this. How narrow is your prayer list? Do you have a burden to pray for people whom you've never met? Paul is a thousand miles east in Rome. He's chained between two guards, obviously not able to visit Colossae. There's nothing he can physically do to help them, but he can pray. So when you hear about God's hand at work somewhere in the world, pray. Pray for our One for Wilmington sister churches, even if you've never met anyone in those congregations. Pray for the work of the gospel in other churches around this area and around the world. So when you get an email in your inbox from one of our ministry partners, whether it be the Stroberts in Calgary, Canada, or whether it's in England or France or South Carolina or Southeast Asia, stop and pray. Oh, and here's a little hint that's not in my notes. When you do that, write them back. Hey, I prayed for you. I'm telling you, it it means a lot. All right, so that's the second observation. Um, Praying for people that he's never met. My third observation about Paul's patterns in prayer um, comes in the, the middle of the verse. We have not ceased to pray for you. Paul's prayer is continual, right? The, the pattern of his prayer is unceasing. So He doesn't just take in some concern and then, you know, pray for it once and then forget about it. No, he hears about them, he adds them to his list, and he keeps that list in front of him, and he regularly prays for them. How many times in your community group has someone brought up a prayer concern, and you, you know, go around the table and, and, you know, pray for that person and that concern, and then you go home, and that's the last time it's ever brought up. I know I'm guilty of that. And, I, and I'm thankful for the guys in, in, in our group who try to bring things back to our attention through the week. So what are you going to do to keep 
remembering, to not cease praying, like was Paul's pattern. My wife, she's a list maker. She's got lists on post-it notes in the back of envelopes and little scraps of paper. And um, she'll make a list for the things she needs to buy or what she needs to pack for vacation, the bills that she needs to pay and what needs to be done around the house. Uh, me, I'm, I'm more tied to my device. And this is, this is my list. If you want me to remember something, text it to me, okay? Don't just, don't just say it. Uh, I will forget, I promise. Um, so I, I've actually found a tool that is uh, helpful for me um, to remember who and what to pray for. Um, so I'm going to show it to you. Um, that's my password. Here we go. Okay. So it's called Prayer Mate. Um, and it's this little app. Um, and it looks like this. I know you can't see it from there. But look it up and get it if you want. Or I'm sure there are others. But here's what Prayer Mate does. It, it helps me to organize and keep track of who and what I'm praying for. Um, so every day it's going to put in front of me a different member of my immediate family, someone in my extended family, a missionary, a co-worker, a community group member, a neighbor, an elder, and someone I need to share the gospel with. That's, a, I think, a, a decent list to start with. Um, you can... You know, you can customize it kind of how you want. You can put in biblical prayers and things like that. So if I click the thing that says start praying, um, I can see right on here. I'm not going to list everybody's name, but Sophia, today's your day. Today is the day I pray for Sophia. And singers, I'm praying for you guys today. Singers, or Dwight's here. Today is the day I pray for Dwight and Miriam Singer. Um, and then there's some, some others on this list as well. So then I swipe left, um, and there's Sophia, and there's a picture of her so I can remember what she looks like in case I forget. Um, <laughs> And then I can add things that I'm praying for about Sophia and ways that I've seen God at work in her life. Um, and if she's got a concern, I can, I can add that to the list. And then I can see next week or, uh, you know, the next time she comes around um, that, you know, God has, has worked in that way. Um, so maybe it'll be helpful for you. I don't know. Um, you know, everybody has a method. Everybody's got or everybody should have a method. Um, if you don't, maybe get one. Um, make a list. Um, put it in front of yourself every day. Another resource that I would recommend um, that you can use to follow Paul's pattern, especially of praying for people you've never met, is um, Operation World. So over the course of a year, it'll take you to every country around the world, and it's going to give you information about how you can pray specifically so that you can bring every tongue and tribe and nation before God's throne. And I'm pretty sure that there is a copy available in the Seedbed bookstore that you can find in the corner of our church library. And probably some of you are just learning right now that we have a church library. Um, and there's some really helpful resources there. So there's, um, there's kind of three sets. There's things that you can use, um, check out for your own study or for your own edification, um, and then bring them back. And they're going to have little tabs on them. And then there's uh, resources that you can purchase. Um, and you can see Gail in the office about uh, how you can uh, get that, that money to her. And then there's a, a shelf of, please take and use these books. And they, they are really free. Um, so check those out. All right. Just a couple of tips to help you cultivate patterns like Paul of his unceasing prayer. So with, with those observations in mind, we want to ask the question, what should we be praying for? So let's take a look at Paul's petition that starts in the second half of verse 9. 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, that's the content of his prayer. Everything else in the passage flows out of that. So as you think about your own prayer life, what kinds of things do you pray for? What are some of the typical prayer requests in your community group? Go ahead and shout them out. What, what are things that we hear as prayer requests? Healing, Healing missionaries, what else? Persecuted Christians, okay? Family dynamics. Wow, I actually have the word family dynamics on my list. I have uh, health concerns, uh, work issues, money troubles, family dynamics, safe travels. You can hear a lot of prayer for safe travels. That was one of the things I heard every week in Awana. Somebody's dad was going somewhere, and we needed to pray for them to come back. Um, so, <clears throat> and, you know, listen, those are all great things to pray for, um, so, um, yeah, one of the things that you find um, sort of in common about them is that they're, they're mostly prayers to ask God to change our circumstances. And uh, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with bringing our needs before our Father, right? He is, after all, our Father, right? He cares for us. He cares about the things that concern us. But notice here in Colossians the content of Paul's prayer, right? His primary petition for the Colossians is not that God would translate them out of their circumstances, but that God would transform them in their circumstances. Jesus, remember, asked the same thing. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. They're, they're in it. I'm just asking that you do something in the, in the world with them. Help them there. So Paul asks... God, that the believers in Colossae might be filled with the knowledge of his will. What does that mean? We, we need to look at that in two parts. First, we need to say, what does it mean to be filled? And then we need to ask, what is the knowledge of God's will? Right? Paul doesn't just pray that you might know it, but that it might fill you. You, know, you can know something and not be filled with the knowledge of it. There are plenty of people in the world who know the facts of the Bible, who know the facts about God and Jesus, but God and the Bible have no meaningful influence in their life. So the Greek word there, plerao, has the idea of completion. It's to fill to the brim so that nothing is lacking. I, I kind of think of it as the difference between when I go and, and fill the tank and when one of my daughters um, goes and fills the tank. Um, you know, they put $10 in it and then keep driving it and hope I'll notice that it's low. And, and then I fill the tank. I, I notice, Rose. <laughs> Just get the car back and it says 12 miles till empty. Oh, come on. All right. Sorry, that's aside. That's not in my notes. Um, <clears throat> Uh, where was I? It's the fill to the brim. So nothing is lacking, right? The, it's the word the gospel writers use when they said that Jesus said or did something to fulfill Scripture. It's also used when Mary poured out the oil to anoint the feet of Jesus. The odor of that perfume filled 
the house. It permeated it. So we're familiar with, the, um, with Ephesians 5.18, right? It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The concept being that instead of being filled or dominated or controlled by the influence of alcohol, we should be filled or dominated or controlled by the Spirit. So what does Paul ask that we are controlled by? the knowledge of his will. So what does that mean? Well, when you think about knowing God's will, what what kinds of things come to mind? I'm not going to ask you to participate. I'll give you some things, see if these resonate with you. Who am I supposed to marry? What college should I go to? Should I take this job? What should I do with my life? You know, we ask these questions about God, and we think, if only God would somehow tell me his will, then I'll, I'll go do that. And I think that's where we go astray. If we think of God's will as some sort of divinely inspired itinerary that we have to somehow discover, I think we're missing how the Bible talks about God's will. So in the Bible, the will of God Um, has two distinct meanings. The the first one is something like God's providence or God's sovereign control over all things. So when we say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that, we mean if God in his providence allows it. So that's the meaning that's implied in passages like Ephesians 1.11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or again, in 1 Peter 3, 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So that's one meaning of God's will, his sovereign control over all things. But the second meaning is something more like his commands or his expectations for us. And so that's the meaning that we see in passages like 1 Thessalonians 4.3, where we see, it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what he desires for us. Or in Romans 12.2, that by the testing, you may discern what the will of God or what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? So in the case of Colossians 1.9, I think it's this second meaning that Paul is praying for. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to somehow try to discern God's providential plan ahead of time. Uh, Instead, we're told to hear and obey the will of God as it's revealed in his word. So That's what Paul is praying for the Colossians, to understand what God has called them to and how God wants them to live. And beyond that, to have knowledge fill them and control them and direct them. I don't think most Christians um, have a problem in knowing what God expects of them. They have a problem doing what God expects So God, or Paul here is asking that they would really apply the truth that they already know to their lives. He doesn't just want us to 
know a list of rules. There are rules, there's laws, there's commands. And Paul prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of them. Um, But in the last phrase there in verse 9, he qualifies that. He prays that we would have such knowledge in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this is the kind of wisdom that it doesn't come by natural means. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of understanding that Jesus promised his disciples in John 16, 13. He said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So we fill ourselves with the commands and the promises of God. And then the Holy Spirit does an internal work that enables us to approve what is excellent, to discern what's best at any given moment to apply the right command at the right time in the right way. That's what wisdom does. It makes a match between the truth and life. I've joked with my son, and you've probably heard this before, the difference between wisdom and knowledge. This is a little freebie. Anybody know what the difference between wisdom and knowledge is? So knowledge is knowing that, botanically speaking, a tomato is technically a fruit, right? Wisdom is knowing not to put tomatoes in fruit salad. All right, that's the difference. It's applying what you know in a way that makes sense. It's the right thing at the right time, okay? It's a match between truth and life experience. That's wisdom. And that's the, that's the kind of um, filling that we need. So that's the content. Now we move on to the purpose. Why does Paul pray this way? What's the purpose of his request? Well, he tells us explicitly in the next verse, in verse 10. Um, it's, it's certainly not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? He's not praying for merely an, uh, you know, an increased grasp of systematic theology, though I would heartily commend to you the study of systematic theology. There are good, good benefits. Um, The purpose of his petition is that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. If we know what God requires of us, his will, and if we allow those requirements to order and control our lives, then we're able to live or walk in a way that reflects Jesus and that pleases him. Throughout Paul's letters, he teaches that there is a kind of conduct, a way of life that fits with the gospel of Jesus. So just a a real quick survey of some of the passages where walk is used to describe a way of life. I have two, three, four, five. Oh, good. There's 12 of them. Um, What a nice number. All right. So, um, and there's probably more. But um, let me remind you about these. Romans 6, 4. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5, 16 reminds us we walk by the Spirit. Ephesians has a bunch of them. Ephesians 4, 1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is kind of parallel to the prayer in Colossians. 
And later in Ephesians 5, um, there's, three, there's three of them here. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Walk as children of light, verse 8. Look carefully then how you walk, verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then two more times in Colossians, we'll see that um, walk as conduct. He says in, um, in Colossians 2.6, which we already, we already looked at earlier, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then later in, in chapter 4, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And then two more, um, both from 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So you can see Paul's pattern in prayer is um, it, he repeats this phrase, walking in a manner that's worthy. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So the point is that being filled with the knowledge of his will leads to a certain walk, a way of life, it's new, it's spirit-empowered, it's faith-driven, it's in the light, in love, in wisdom, in a manner that's worthy of God and our calling. What does worthy mean? Well, it means to be deserving of. If, if a story is newsworthy, it's a story that deserves to be on the news. And if a car stops being Roadworthy, it doesn't deserve to be on the road anymore. And DMV will tell you so. And when we sing worthy of every song we could ever sing, what we mean is that Jesus deserves all of our praise. So what Paul is saying here is we need to live lives that the Lord Jesus deserves. Are you living your life in a way that Jesus deserves. We need to walk in a way that shouts from the rooftops, God is great. Jesus is good. How does your walk look? We should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does Paul mean by fully pleasing? I think the word fully there is really important. So listen, if you're in Christ, you are already pleasing to God because of Jesus. So it doesn't matter whether you became a Christian 60 years ago or 60 minutes ago. If you're placing your trust in the person and work of Jesus, his blood covers you. You are embraced and accepted by a happy father. But remember that Paul's prayer is for maturity. So maybe you're an immature, a baby Christian. What does God desire for you? He's pleased with you, but he wants you to grow up. He wants you to become mature. He wants you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and to understand how to apply his commands to your life and put them into practice. And as that happens, there is a fullness to his pleasure in you. Since you're becoming 
what he always intended you to be. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And I think on Father's Day, I can especially appreciate this truth. All right? When each of my children were born, there was literally nothing in the world they could possibly do to make me love them any less, right? They were mine, and I was pleased with them. And yet, as they grow and mature, there is a fullness of pleasure that I enjoy when I see them doing things that make this dad proud, right? There's fullness, fully pleasing. That's the goal. So what does that look like? What is a life that Jesus deserves? Well, Paul is going to spell it out over the next couple of verses with a set of three characteristics, the product of the worthy walk. And each one of these is marked by a participle in the Greek. I didn't use participle as one of the P's, but I could have. Um, so there's three, three participles. You might see four, but trust me, um, I'm going to say three. There, there are four, but there's only three. There's, there's both. All right, so what are they? Well, they're bearing fruit and, and increasing. That's the first one. Being, strength, being strengthened is the second one, and giving thanks is the third one. So let's just take a look briefly at each of those um, participles. So notice that the first one, bearing fruit and increasing. Sorry, Chad, bearing, I was wrong. Bearing fruit and increasing is the first participle, but that's close enough, bearing fruit. Um, it's that bearing fruit and increasing that we see in verse 10 is repeated from earlier in verse 6, where he says, um, well, I, you have to read a little bit more. Of this um, you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. So in the same way that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing and growing and flourishing among the Colossians and across the whole world, Paul prays that because of this gospel flourishing, the Colossians themselves would become fruitful and growing in their good works. So a fruitful and growing gospel makes fruitful and growing people. Jesus deserves a fruitful Christian life, a life where the Holy Spirit is in control and he's producing fruit. We know what that looks like, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what he deserves. He's worthy of that because of who he is. He deserves a life where we're increasing in the knowledge of God. So are you growing or are you stagnant or have you gone backwards? Do you know Jesus better today than you did last week or last year? That's what Jesus deserves. And Paul says that's only going to happen if we're filled with the knowledge of his will. So the second characteristic of the worthy walk we find in verse 11, it says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The Greek word for strengthen there is dunamis, which means to be able or to have the capacity to do something. So how much power is available for our worthy walk? Notice that it's not proportioned simply according to our need, right? The, the portion of, of the power is according to the might of his glory. The power that spoke the universe into existence. The power that sustains every atom at every moment. The power that split the Red Sea and allowed the Israelites to walk through on dry ground. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that caused the gospel to grow and increase in the world. That's the power. That power is the source of strength that we draw on. And what do we use that power for? Well, for all endurance and patience with joy. So what do you need strength to endure today? In what trial do you need to continue trusting in God despite your circumstances? Where do you need to wait for God to work out his good designs for your life without getting bitter or anxious? Brother and sister, there is strength. There is strength for that moment. And let's not forget those last two little words in the phrase, with joy. So not only are the Colossians supposed to endure, but they are to do so with joy. It's a distinctive marker of Christian perseverance. Oh, people can endure a lot apart from the power of God in Jesus. They can gut it out for a long time. Maybe with clenched teeth and strenuous effort, they can hang on. But can they do it with joy? Joyful perseverance is enabled only by the empowering work of God. So again, Paul doesn't pray that they're translated out of their circumstances, but rather he prays that God would transform them in their circumstances, that they would be filled with patience and endurance with joy in the midst of their circumstances. So the third characteristic of a walk that is fully pleasing to the Lord is found in verse 12. Walking worthy means giving thanks to the Father. Notice that Paul has come full circle from verse 3 where he started his prayer saying, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And now he's going to wrap up this prayer with thanksgiving. Gratitude pleases Jesus. It, it probably should be noted um, that the, um, the little phrase um, with joy, right, the way the, the grammar is constructed, that with joy actually could be connected with either endurance and patience or with the giving of thanks. Um, and commentators are kind of split on, on where it belongs. But I, I think either way, the point's the same, right? 
When we go through suffering and trials, we need to see things from God's perspective, not grumbling as if somehow we deserve better, but rather filled with joyful gratitude to him who's worthy of all praise. So we have to ask the question, how do we develop this joyous, thankful attitude in the midst of difficult problems or difficult people? And Paul answers that by taking us back to the gospel. So starting at the end of verse 12, he's going to unpack three reasons for thanksgiving. Um, I wish that there was a P word that would say reasons. Um, I didn't find a good one, but I did find three P's that we can be thankful for. So that's how we're going to structure um, this last point. So three P's that we have to be thankful for. How do we develop joyous, thankful attitude? Well, we're thankful for, first, the privilege that we don't deserve. Beginning in verse 12, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul uses the Greek word kleros, inheritance, and it's a reference in the Septuagint to the promised land. So in earlier times, God had promised his chosen and holy and special people an earthly inheritance in the land of Canaan. Not because they deserved it, but because of his grace toward them. So in the same way, God has given us a portion, an inheritance. He's given us a, a place, a, a place to call home. And we don't deserve it. In ourselves, we are not qualified. In fact, we're totally disqualified. If this inheritance is something we needed to somehow be competent for, none of us would get it. But the Father has qualified us. He's made us sufficient. So all we bring to the table is need, lack, emptiness. But what, what God is, is power, sufficiency, and fullness. So we have a privilege of an inheritance that we don't deserve. He's qualified us for that. But the second thing that we can be thankful for is the peril from which we've been rescued. It goes on in verse 13 to say, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So we were under the authority and the power of darkness. We were slaves to dark powers. And that's why we were disqualified. But God has set us free. He's moved us from one realm into another. There's been this massive spiritual resettlement project. Here we were in this domain of darkness, enslaved to our passions and desires, and then God up and moved us. He transferred our citizenship from one kingdom to another. I mean, physically, we still live here in, in Wilmington, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting for the king. So we're thankful from the, for the peril from which we've been rescued. And finally, we're thankful for the pardon we've received. So in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the antecedent for that pronoun, whom is the son, right? His beloved son. That's, 
In, in him we have redemption. So Satan held us captive under sin. Our guilt and our condemnation was how he kept us enslaved. The, and that word redemption, it has this idea of being bought. Uh, my son is named Ransom. And it's with that thought in mind, we have been redeemed. We've been ransomed out. The, a pr- the price was paid to buy us out of slavery. God has forgiven us. He's wiped away our sin. And that none of that hangs over our head. So you're qualified. You're pardoned. You're pleasing to him. And you're on your way to being even more fully pleasing to him as your walk becomes increasingly conformed to his will. So that is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And it's my prayer for us at Bethel. Filled with the knowledge of his will. And nothing more and certainly nothing less. So would you pray that prayer with me right now? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come this morning with grateful hearts. Lord, we know that we are not qualified, um, but that you qualified us, gave us an inheritance, and that we have that to look forward to. That you have rescued us from the domain of darkness, and you have transferred us into your kingdom. Lord, we're grateful that we have forgiveness. So Lord, we, we pray that with these blessings, we would cultivate um, gratitude, um, that we would rely on your strength and power. Um, Lord, that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling so that we could bear fruit, so that we could grow into maturity. Um, Lord, we pray this morning that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will. And we pray in the strong and sufficient and supreme name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.